Game on on 2FM. With Green Farm. Fuel your day with Green Farm's new high-protein cooked chicken breast fillets. 100% natural and packed with flavour. Welcome along to Game On. It's Thursday the 23rd of December and as it's our last show of 2021 today, we're going to bring you some of our memorable moments from the last 12 months. Well, we're going to try anyway, but back in March I was lucky enough to be in an empty Chatham race course. I was one of the few that was there and I was able to get Rachel Blackmore's reaction to her success on Honeysuckle in the champion hurdle. And look, when, you, when you're on something with an, with an engine that she has, you can, you know, move yourself um, forward or back whenever you want. But then when you turned at the top of the hill on a mare that was guaranteed to stay, how did you find the confidence to tuck her back in and not get involved in the race? Um, I, I was just happy where I was, I suppose. Um, I know, that's a difficult question, OK? Look, we won. <laughs> there was the excitement at Portland Row as Kelly Harrington brought home gold for Ireland from Tokyo. The place was lined, every child dressed in green. Um, you know, it looks like St. Patrick's Day here. There was one American woman who I met and uh, she'd actually followed a guy dressed as St. Patrick's down to the street to find out what was going on. She'd arrived here thinking this was St. Patrick's Day and she'd found out about Kelly Harrington. As Andy Farrell prepares Ireland for more tests against the All Blacks in 2022, we'll look back on our big win in November. The match referee, Luke Pearce, has blown the full-time whistle. The challenge was laid down. TJ Paranara with the hunger before the game. Ireland accepted the challenge. They rose to the challenge. We were in Chicago, we were near Viva Stadium, and they've done it again this afternoon. Three penalties late in the match by Joey Carberry. Ireland have absolutely smashed New Zealand by 29 points to 20. We've all that and much, much more between now and 7pm. Game on on 2FM. Well, she's had a clean sweep of all the end-of-year awards and in March I was there when Rachel Blackmore's Cheltenham started in style as she landed the champion hurdle on Honeysuckle. Game on on 2FM. Now, I am delighted to say that we are joined on the line by Ruby Walt and Rachel Blackmore. Ruby, I was nervous uh, before Rachel went off today, but I was even more nervous, afraid that the line wouldn't work. So I'm delighted (laughs) that it has. Rachel, look, congratulations. I know you're obviously over there in your bubble and you're going out getting on a horse that you get on lots of times and going out and riding in a big race. But there was a huge amount of pressure and expectation. Could you feel it? Uh, hey Marie, hey. yeah, look, uh, unbelievable day. Um, yeah, look, it's Cheltenham after all. There's a lot, a lot of extra pressure, I suppose, attached to it. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of relief too when when you cross the line. I know you, you said afterwards, look, you know, I'm just a jockey. I'm out there doing what I do. But you know, you're still the first woman to go out and and do that. And I often think that when you're in the middle of it, you might not realise how big a deal it is. But just looking at the reaction and the amount of people that were giving you, um, giving you love on social media and best wishes, and just so proud of you to to reach such a big milestone. Yeah, look, it's incredible. Um, obviously, for me personally. You know, my gender wasn't the first thing that came into my head, but you know, I understand it's a, it's probably a, a bigger deal on the in the wider world. But uh, yeah, just just for me to cross the line and you know to have a small realization that I've just won a champion hurdle, like it's it's incredible. Rachel, watching it, I, I know she's a better mare now than she probably was last year, but did you think she would be as brilliant as she was? 
No, she keeps surprising me. Um, she really, she really stepped it up the last day. Um, in the Chanel Farm Irish Champion hurdle, she was incredible. Um, and yeah, her performance today was another step up. Rachel, everyone says that she keeps getting better in every single race. And for you, what does that mean? Like, how does she keep getting better? She's probably, you know, her last two wins have been more impressive. Um, she's getting slicker at her jumping. Um, everything is just kind of tying in. You know, she, we're doing things a lot easier in races. Um, things are coming easier to her. And, yeah, like she's always been, you know, fantastic. But it's just happening a bit easier now. And for you then, like, are you getting better then at doing what you're doing on her? Um, I'm very good to steer, yeah. My steering has always been good when it comes to honeysuckle. I think you're being harsh on yourself. Today was had the potential to be complicated, and it was complicated. I mean, Goshen wasn't exactly giving you much help in front of you. You had to make the right choices, but you were cool enough to do it. Did you feel composed during the race? Yeah, I actually, I actually felt I was happy where I was. Um, you know, I was... I knew I was going to line up wide with her and I was hoping I wouldn't end up, you know, four, four or five horses wide if they, they were congested inside me. But I was able to slot in nicely behind Aspire Tower. And, um, yeah, I was I was happy with where I was. And look, when you when you're on something with an, with an engine that she has, you can, you know, move yourself um, forward or back whenever you want. But then when you turned at the top of the hill on a mare that was guaranteed to stay... How did you find the confidence to tuck her back in and not get involved in the rest? Um, I, I was just happy where I was, I suppose. Um, I know, that's a difficult question. OK, look, we won. <laughs> and what about when, like, what was happening with Goshen? Like, how did you not get distracted by that as well? Yeah, when I saw him drift off to the right, I, you know, I, I kind of thought he was he was gone then. And, you know, then he rocks back into the picture. And, you know, I was... I, I did have a slight moment where I, I didn't want him to get in my way um, so yeah w- when he was out of um, eye shot I was pleased about that Rachel look you started as an amateur your first year didn't you started in pony racing point appointing turn professional you've crashed down barriers did you ever think you would jump the last in front in the champion hurdle on a mare and go and win one I didn't um, people have have dreams and you know this was so what happened today was so far removed from a reality I could even dream about. So, you know, it's incredible. Like when I when I was an amateur, I dreamed about riding in Cheltenham. Um, you know, that was an aspiration I would have loved to have done. And, you know, then to ride winner there and then to come and win a champion hurdle. It's, it's different. It's just different. I have to say, Rachel, you were absolutely amazing today. You really gave us a, a great lift and it was just a brilliant start of the week. And everyone is so proud of you. I don't know if you can feel it over there, but really here at home, there is so much love for you and what you did and for Honeysuckle as well. And also, it means we didn't have to talk to Ruby. We got to talk to you, Ruby. <laughs> Always a plus. <laughs> yeah, that was that definitely a plus, Marie. But you're right. And even here in Chatham today, um, the only professionals here, but to watch them all walk out and clap her, everyone was, was proud. And I think, for me, Rachel has broken down barriers within racing where we consider her a jockey and have done for a long time. And it's that the wider world just sees her now as a jockey, not a female jockey, because that's what you are. Game on on 2FM. Game on, rugby.
Welcome back to Game On as we bring you some of our memorable moments from 2021. In November, Andy Farrell's Irish side had a clean sweep of wins, the highlight being a 29-20 win over New Zealand at a packed Aviva Stadium. Rory Best and Murray Kinsella look back on the win for us, but first, let's hear how Michael Cochran called the game. Game On Rugby Saxon has it, moves it up, and there's the charging for the line, pops it across, James Lowe for the try, James Lowe for the corner, James Lowe, born in New Zealand, reared in Dublin, cultivated at the Aviva Stadium, Ireland into the league, 14 minutes gone, five points for them. Ireland screaming for a fast ball as uh, New Zealand try to put the squeeze on the second try. Murray got us the ball. It's gone back to James Lowe. James Lowe smashes it over the line to the Hamlock Square end of the ground. The match referee, Luke Pierce, has blown the full-time whistle. The challenge was laid down. TJ Paranara with the hacker before the game. Ireland accepted the challenge. They rose to the challenge. And Ireland have beaten the living daylights out of New Zealand for the third time. We were in Chicago. We were in the Aviva Stadium. And they've done it again this afternoon. Three penalties late in the match by Joey Carberry. Ireland have absolutely smashed New Zealand by 29 points to 20. You guys are so damn proud of me, really and truly. Don't pretend you don't know me when I show up, all right? Yes. Uh, by the way, I can work that out. <laughs> between Joe Biden but I think Michael Corcoran definitely done his best impression of Michal and Murray Hurtick uh, when he was describing James Lowe scoring his first try um, we're replacing it with New Zealand rather than Fiji when it was Sean Elgo Halpine we're delighted to be joined on the line by Murray Kinsella and Rory Best Rory I'm going to start with you you've been involved in that kind of a situation in the past this was a slightly different performance but I think equally as thrilling yeah, look, I think the the performance on on Saturday afternoon was uh, probably as good of Ireland performance I've seen in a long time. I thought just they dominated everywhere, and a lot's been made about how this green wall just went after New Zealand. And yes, everyone's saying New Zealand didn't play well, but they just weren't allowed to. They were just smothered. And um, I think probably what the most impressive is normally when you get Ireland in this sort of mood, it is about a lot about grunt, and it's a lot about smothering teams and then taking a chance every now and again. But every time the back line got the ball, they really looked like they cut through New Zealand, which is no mean feat. I was, it was incredible to watch, Rory, how New Zealand were the ones that ended up out in their feet, not Ireland. You're used to seeing the Irish lads peeling themselves off the ground, heaving in lungfuls of air. But that was the All Blacks this time round. Yeah, it just shows that if you can dominate possession and dominate territory and, and make teams make tackles. Um, there was a stat sort of most of the way through the first half that Ireland were just dominating all aspects. I think New Zealand had maybe made three three times more tackles than, than Ireland had. And but No matter who you are and no matter if you want to portray yourself as being invincible like the All Blacks, if you have to make three and four times more tackles in the opposition and are constantly under pressure, the fatigue sets in and, and mistakes happen and um, that's what Ireland did, and it was it's very strange to see because that's normally what New Zealand do to everyone else. So uh, it was brilliant to see this Ireland team doing that. 
Marie Kinsley is also with us. Marie, should we be getting excited? We do have a couple of texts in, which are probably summing up the mood of some of the people in this country saying that New Zealand were flying here, there and everywhere, that they were tired, they'd been out during the week, it was the end of a long year for them, and that next summer's three tests will show how good we really are. Where do you sit on it? Yeah, I mean, all that is true, but it doesn't diminish from the quality of the Irish performance. As Rory says there, a lot of their struggles were based on what Ireland did in attack. It was 231 tackles they had to make in the end, which is a massive number uh, and was the reason that they made mistakes in defence for a couple of those tries, uncharacteristic mistakes, because Ireland was so relentless. What was really impressive was just the fluidity of Ireland's performance. The attacking side of the game was, again, like the Japan fixture a week ago, just really high class. And, and you're seeing it now. All the forwards in this Ireland team, they can handle the ball. All of them can make decisions. And it's not just about Johnny Sexton in, in attack in, in terms of the back line. You know, Gary Ringo stood up as a playmaker. You had Hugo Keenan as a first receiver. James Lowe getting a huge number of touches in attack. Um, and Andrew Conway featuring. Everyone in that back line now is stepping up and taking responsibility. And suddenly you've got a situation where Ireland are really hard to predict in attack. You know, Andy Farrell set out to make them unpredictable. And that's exactly what they've got now. The All Blacks, they just genuinely struggled to deal with the variety and the options that, that Ireland were taking. So that's really exciting. Yes, it's going to be very different down there next summer, a three-test tour when they're probably physically in, in, in their peak. But this is a really exciting development for Ireland. And absolutely, you cannot take away from the quality of the victory. Rory, we're hearing some voices in the background there. We know that you're away coaching with Fiji for the November test. Are they the Fijian players we're hearing in the background? <laughs> yeah, some of them, they're very hard to keep quiet at times. <laughs> Any of them take inspiration from the Irish at the weekend? Uh, do you know, they, it was amazing that they were all coming up and congratulating. Um, I think that they understood how special performance it is. I think no matter what team you're involved in, if you're involved in the sport and you see a performance like that, you can't help but be enthralled with it. Rory, we've a text in for you. Do you think that this was a better result for New Zealand because now the All Blacks have a few years to the World Cup to know what they need to work on while Ireland couldn't really play any better? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And, and we know what the All Blacks are like when they've lost. And Ian Foster was speaking afterwards. He said, we're not even thinking about summer, but you know they'll be really looking forward to getting Ireland down in New Zealand where of course Ireland have never won and that's the next challenge for this team absolutely they're going to have to go to another level but that's the exciting thing as well and, and Farrell and Sexton both spoke about this after they feel there's plenty more scope in this team even think about those opportunities in the first half like Ireland went into New Zealand 22 16 times in this game and 12 of those times they didn't even score you know they, they came away empty handed so there's loads of examples of getting into good positions and, and not maybe taking the opportunities of course, you're not going to get every single one of them, but there's there's more scope and potential in this team. There's growth areas like the kicking game that can get better in terms of attacking, kicking. Um, and that's exciting. As I mentioned, some of the younger guys are really stepping up as leaders now with a young age profile. Think of Hugo Keenan, Caelan Doris, Ronan Keller, Andrew Porter, all these guys who are in their mid or, or early 20s who can definitely get better over the, over the coming years. So absolutely, the, the All Blacks will learn a huge amount from this. They always do, but... I think there's there's growth left in this Ireland team and that's really exciting. Game on rugby. That was Murray Kinson and Rory Best on the show back in November. After this break we'll look back on how Ireland fared at the Tokyo Olympics. Game on on 2FM. 
Welcome back to Game On. Now, as the dust settled on the Tokyo Olympics, I was joined by David Gillick and Ina Reardon to reflect on the Games on the same day as Kelly Harrington's heroic return to Portland Row. Game On on 2FM. Now, Ina Reardon, as I mentioned, is with me in studio. Ian, welcome back from Tokyo. How was it? Good evening, Marie. Yeah, it was good, good to be back all right. Yeah, I got back earlier today. Um, no, yesterday. Today, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> well, I think um, you've told us all that we need to know now. It's we, difficult getting we, back we, into we, the time I zones. We lose a day on the way back, but uh, yeah, it was it was certainly a, an Olympics like like no other on on so many levels. Um, not least all the all, all the COVID loopholes that had to be constant, consistently jumped through. But uh, I I think I said I felt all along going even go back to last year and even this year when there was all the doubts about it. I said, look, these Olympics should happen. They should go ahead for the sake of the athletes and. I think I think I think that was being proved right. I mean, of course, there was a few COVID scares here and there, but I don't think it turned into the the big COVID virus situation that we that we thought it was going to be. Um, having said that, it was there was a lot of difficulties for the athletes, to, to, you know, to being limited to the to the village, being not being having to go home after your event, and a few few cases where athletes had to miss their event. So the COVID thing made it a made it a certainly more demanding Olympics. But I think from a from a a sporting perspective and the way the way the world engaged with us, it was it was it was well worth going ahead with. Yes. Yeah, I think people really enjoyed it. It was a great distraction from reality. It was something I think everybody needed at a time when um, things were tough for a lot of people. And Kelly Harrington did say that on quite a number of occasions. She was delighted to make people smile. David Gillick made a lot of people smile as well. He's with us now on the line. David, welcome back. How are you doing? Cheers, Marie. I'm all right. I'm hanging in there. <laughs> tough, uh, tough going home now to a house with three children. And the fact that you've been away as well for a while, I'd say there's plenty of jobs. <laughs> plenty of jobs, yeah. There was a there was a long list put in place, and slowly getting through it today. But no, look, it's it's good to be home. Um, and I like what Ian was saying there as well. Like you know, it was a, it was a very busy couple of weeks when it, once it kicks off, you're kind of you're full on into it, and uh, it's great that we just had success throughout, really, and finish on a high there with Kelly on Sunday. So yeah, back to back to reality now. Yeah, it's brilliant. And I think a lot of people will be tuning in to the news and tuning in to lots of radio stations today to hear a bit of a flavour of Portland Row. Kelly is home. She was getting an open top bus through her home area and it was brilliant pictures. Let's have a flavour of her day. It does mean, like, it, it means the world to be able to bring back a goal. But still, like, my mentality is anybody who steps through those re- through the ropes and... Uh, makes it to one Olympic Games is a champion, you know, like regardless of whether you bring a medal back or not. You know, to me, for me, it's it's not always about winning medals and stuff like that. It's about getting through the, through the doors of a boxing club for all those young people out there, for the teenagers out there. It's about stepping through the, the doors first and meeting people and becoming part of a, of a family then. And then whatever happens after that is a bonus, really. Do you know, like, boxing is, it's an escape for a lot of people. Uh, and I just hope that with, with the success that uh, we've had out here, that we, we get a lot of funding now to go into the into local boxing clubs and help support local bo- boxing clubs because that's what we need. Uh, bigger picture, what is next? I don't know what's next because just take it day by day. I haven't like I've only like I'm only home now, so I'll have to wait and I'll speak to so I have to speak to, to Bernard and speak to my club coach and, and see what's next. Uh, you know, You're not see whatever. Yet. Oh no, Jean, no, not done yet. I know, like, I know I'm going grey and all, but like, I still have a few years left in me, you know. Like, but uh, yeah, I'm not done yet. Are you, are you thinking of this stage, Paris or Pro? I don't know. I don't know what to do yet. I'll see. Uh, like, I'm thinking Paris. I'm thinking Pro. I don't know what to do. Like, uh, it depends on on on. Look, I'm at the edge now. It depends on the offer that I'm going to get. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see what offers come my way, and uh, I'll do what's whatever's best for me. And 
we'll, we'll take it from there. She's not ruling anything out and there will be so many options for her but it's going to be a difficult decision as she said herself. What would you, David, do you do, David Gillick, as someone who was uh, at an Olympic Games and was an amateur athlete? Yeah, look, it, it's a great question and I think I think Kelly's right, you know, she's got to take her time over it. Like, at, the, at her age now, um, she's looking long-term, she's looking, okay, how do I maximise this and how do I... How do I kind of, you know, let's be honest, create a bit of a future for herself long term and whether that's going pro um, and she referred to an offer, I think it comes down to numbers really. Um, and if she gets a good enough offer to turn pro, I think it could be something that would be very hard to turn down. She's always got to look at her own game, like, you know, in terms of like what, what when that transfers into the pro game. You know, what, what impressed me was like throughout the whole kind of Olympics, um, you know, in terms of kind of like her her orthodox stance, then she's able to switch it to southpaw when she's in a fight. It, it caused a lot of confusion for her oppo- opponents. And I think if you can bring that into the pro game, also, you know, the way she managed herself, even in the final from like, you know, getting losing the first round, then coming back uh, and winning the fight unanimously is is incredible. Like, you know, but again, like that's all kind of, I suppose, in reality, what needs to be done, but what happens now going long term? And I think, yeah, like I just feel where she's at um, and the journey that she's been on. I think if there was an offer there where she could give herself a bit of comfort over the next couple of years, um, that could be something. But the other side of that as well, from like an Olympic point of view, they'd be desperate to kind of hang on to her in a way as well, you know? And I think whatever Sport Ireland do or whatever offer could be could be on the table from them, like they don't want to lose someone who who could potentially, as Ian said, go into Paris and maybe, you know, defend her title. Um, but also I think what she does for the sport and particularly, you know, women in sport, um, her kind of her community and everything she stands for, I think is really, really positive. And, you know, you wouldn't like to lose that from from an amateur perspective going forward. I think there's a lot of value that she can add to, to sport in Ireland. And uh, yeah, like it's I think she just needs to enjoy it. Um, it's probably all those questions when you're straight <laughs> off the plane or a little bit like She's probably in that whirlwind of what, what has just happened and, and probably just needs a bit of time to, to kind of soak it all up and take it all in. Yeah, I know lots of people are saying, wouldn't it be great to see Kelly Harrington um, fight Katie? But look, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would like that. Um, I heard someone say you need to have a bad guy in a fight. There probably there probably isn't one. I can't see Katie Taylor being the bad guy or, or Kelly. So David, <laughs> is it something you would like to see? It's exciting. And I think that's the great thing is like we, we, we've got two two kind of female boxers that are top of the world, so to speak. So, um, like you said as well, I think outside the ring, there's a lot of opportunities. And they're probably already, I'm sure, I know she has an age, and I'm sure the phone is red hot at the moment with people trying to get a piece of her. Um, and I hope she does kind of maximise that because I think it's well-deserved. Yeah, it'd be a great book as well. I'd be, I'd be, if I was a publisher, <laughs> I'd be like, Kelly's, Kelly's story, time for Christmas. I'd, yeah. I'd love to read it. Um, and David, like you've came back from an Olympic Games. Your story is a little bit different then Kelly's because she's obviously won the gold medal but still yeah, at the same time Yeah, very different Thanks for that Marie <laughs> A nice little one. bit different um, but you know at the same time there is a come down from an Olympic Games oh. as well that takes a bit of an adjustment Oh definitely, definitely and and like people talk about the Olympic Blues um, and it will happen it will kind of hit her it'll hit up the whole team and you know it, it's, a, it's a weird scenario when you come back I can remember coming back from Beijing and yeah, I didn't perform that well, but it was almost like, right, you know, people who won the medals go out first and then people who perform well and then the rest of you is just falling behind. <laughs> and you're almost like in the airport, get me out of here. Um, and it is that because, you know, Ian mentioned there how long they've been away and everything's been structured and they're all working towards that goal and then it starts and then you get through and you keep going on and the next minute you win a medal. Um, 
and then it's all over and you come home and like there will be a lot of like buzz around various people for the first couple of days but then reality kind of kicks in it's like okay what am I doing now do you get on a holiday do you reevaluate your goals and then start building and you know some athletes will struggle with that because everything over the last say particularly the last year to two years it's been very very structured um and then it just stops so you know that's where you rely on the people that are closest to you, your coaches and, and your family and friends and you know a lot of people will want a bit of a break they maybe want to get away from it all and just kind of a bit of quiet time and then it's rebuilding again. The interesting thing is like, you know, with Paris only three years away, like you're straight, you're, you're straight into a cycle almost immediately. Um, and even from the OFI's perspective, they're already looking at flights. They're already looking at accommodations and holding camps and all this sort of stuff. So even from like creating their long list of who's potentially going to go, that's already started, which is amazing, really. Um, but it will be a quick turnaround. You know, you're straight in, even in athletics, like next year, Next year, we have Europeans, you have world champs, and there's also a Commonwealth thrown in there as well. So it, it, it's crazy next uh, next 12 months. Yeah, it really is. And I've actually seen, um, I have seen Nadia Power out running and I saw um, Phil Healy as well putting up on her Instagram that they're back training as well. So mm. everyone's getting straight back into it. But one person who isn't getting straight back into it for a little while anyway is Kelly Harrington because she is busy at her own homecoming. Samantha Library of RT News is there for us. Samantha, is it as exciting as it looks on the television? Oh, Marie, it really is. I don't think I have the words to describe the atmosphere down here today. Um, you may have seen the footage on the news today, but from early on, people lined the streets around Portland Row and the rest of Dublin's north inner city. I was driving in here from home earlier on and you had people outside pubs, people outside their houses gathering from two or three hours before the bus was due, pitching their spot with their folding chairs. And um, there was children up on uh, on roofs of cars. It kind of reminded me of Italia 90 um, and, and, and my own experience of it. And there was um, children kind of up on roofs and, and everyone, the place was lined, every child dressed in green. Um, you know, it looks like St. Patrick's Day here. There was one American woman who I met and uh, she'd actually followed a guy dressed as St. Patrick down to the street to find out what was going on. She'd arrived here thinking this was St. Patrick's Day and she'd found out about Kelly Harrington. But the people were just so thrilled. I mean, this homecoming has meant so much to them. You've seen all the coverage from Portland Row over the past week or so and how much this event has meant to the community. And even before Kelly was even near a medal, this place was decked out. Apparently they cleared out carols of their green, white and orange bunting weeks ago. Every single house has, has it outside. There's flags, there's posters. And today they've added it. There was children with gold medals um, around their necks. There was a newborn baby just a couple of weeks old uh, with their gold medal asleep, missing the whole thing. And of course, we were saying earlier on that Kelly Harrington was a newborn when Italia 90 happened. Um, but, you know, the, the, these scenes will be recalled in those terms in the future. Um, the highlight, I suppose, was five o'clock when the bus, um, the open top bus with her on board and her family turned on to Portland Row. They were chanting her name. They, uh, they were screaming and you could see she was overcome by the emotion of it all. And um, I mean, you have to remember, she hasn't seen and hasn't been here to feel or experience what's been going on here. But you could feel the pride, you could feel the joy. And as she passed by her family home, the, the one we've seen on the news so often over the past couple of weeks, loads of her family members were outside and she was wiping away the tears. Now, she travelled throughout the rest of um, the Dublin's north inner city around Summerhill, Ballybock, a couple of those areas. But so good was the reception on Portland Row that she came around for a second um, time and uh, they gave her another reception and at the end of it um, someone threw up uh, Simba from the Lion King Teddy she held it up just like in the movie Hakuna Matata of course being um, her mantra throughout this Oh Sam it sounds absolutely fabulous and, and one thing I've noticed just from listening to the different reports and you know 
people that you're interviewing, everybody has so many nice things to say about her. And it's one thing when you, you know, you hear journalists and, and all the rest and commentators mention things, but when it's our own community and the sound bites and what they're saying is just beautiful. It really does seem like there's something about Kelly Harrington. Um, I met her for the first time in um, 2018 out in Dublin Airport when she wasn't as well known as she will be for the rest of her life, um, coming back with her medal then. Um, and even then, she's very down to earth, very accessible, very honest about her feelings about things and her family as well. I mean, I sat on Portland Row yesterday while I was reporting from here. Um, and over the course of an hour and a half, there was a constant stream of people pulling up um, on the side of the road knocking on her door, most of them strangers, dropping in gifts, wishing them well, looking for selfies, and they have made themselves accessible. They have been honest about her journey, about how much it means to all of them. Everybody on this street, I think, feels like they own a piece of Kelly Harrington. Um, you know, that she was born and reared here in the shadow of the five lamps. It's an area, as many people were saying around here, that's in the news sometimes for all the wrong reasons. And this has just been such a, a tonic for them um, in, in, in contrast. They've been able to celebrate, you know, the, the community that they know that they have here, the, the, the boxing clubs and the, the, the work that the locals do. All of that is something that they've been able to showcase over the past week or two. Um, and they've been able to put out their best foot forward and, and show the rest of Ireland what actually the Dublin's north inner city is all about. Thank you so much. You've painted great pictures for us there and Kelly Harrington has definitely transformed where she's from. David, just to move the our chat on now to athletics because now that the mm -hmm. dust has settled, it is time for the debriefs. And when you look back at how our Irish athletics team got on, do you think it was a successful games for them just as a whole? I wouldn't say it was a successful games. I think, you know, you've got to look at it maybe more kind of individually and see how people got on in relation to their own kind of times and season and stuff like that. I think, you know, you have to bear in mind that we, like as much as we had a relatively large team going to Olympic Games in terms of track and field, um, a lot of our athletes qualified in kind of quota places, which, you know, and no discredit to them, is an amazing achievement to get there. But when you go to, I suppose, the elite of the elite, um, I think it was a few people maybe would kind of have come home with a, arguably a reality check in terms of where they are in relation to, to that level. Like, it's very easy to kind of go, OK, let's look at, you know, our top ranked athletes and how do they perform. But, you know, if you were to lay, say kind of, you know, Brendan Boyce, uh, 10th in, in the 50k walk, a very, very good um uh, performance when you can you factor in all the conditions and things like that. I, I think he'd be very happy with that. Um, I think you know Tom Barr. I think he was ninth. I think he was our best perform uh, athlete um, individually. And I think again, it's kind of like he would have wanted more. He would have wanted to be in that final. Um, but you look at his event and you like it, that, we had world records. That was probably arguably the greatest final in the history of athletics. Um, be interested to see what Ian, Ian thinks about that. But for me, it was just I was blown away by the level in that event. Um, I still think Tom is capable of getting to a final in, in that's a top eight, but it didn't happen, you know, for him. And again, you're always kind of you know, up against it when an athlete produces uh, an amazing time. And, and that's what happened in his event. An Italian guy kind of pipped him for that last spot. Um, but look, overall, I think I think it's very mixed. I think there was good performances from from the relay, obviously making that final, um, which gives 
the whole kind of area of relays and where relays are kind of moving because it is something world athletics are trying to enhance more of more mixed relays um because it's very kind of spectator friendly if you like and i think when you we have a, a team that gets to a final that creates huge opportunities going forward so that team's already qualified for oregon next year for the world champs so i think a lot of athletes will be targeting that as opposed to you know they might be a little bit shy of individual time so that gives huge um huge opportunity um like you know the other kind of aspect of that that is the impact that had, say, on Phil Healy, you know. Uh, she has a relay first and then comes out and has to do an individual. And, and that's a really difficult position to be in. Um, so, again, it's kind of managing that a little bit uh, going forward. But, look, I, I think overall it was mixed. Like I said, there was a few positives in there. I think, um, like Andrew Coscran, I, I, I was very impressed with. I think the way he handled himself um, in the heat of the 1500 and even the way... His his interview went afterwards. He he was very much like, oh, I didn't expect to be here. Now I'm here. Now I have to go and reevaluate. But you know how he managed his race in terms of what he did and put himself in contention. I think was was admirable. I think you know when you're you're not highly ranked and you come into a situation where it's not always about times. It's about tactics. I thought he handled that very very well. Um, whereas maybe some athletes didn't do, um, didn't kind of put themselves aggressively in races and give themselves every opportunity to qualify I thought he handled that very well but even after semi-final like he he virtually ran uh equal to pb and he was still a little bit like i've ran 335 i think it was and he's like he's out the back door so again for someone like that i think he, he knows where he is now and hopefully he can take something from that and move on and that's exactly what it's all about what do you do now next particularly going into next year where you have a europeans and you have a world and particularly that europeans it's a huge opportunity for people, you know, um, going forward. But obviously, it's now two years uh, in front of kind of Paris, so it'll be a huge kind of benchmark going forward. I think is next year. Ian, I, look, I don't think anybody expects the Irish athletics teams to be going to Olympic Games and coming home with bags full of medals. But at the same time, it would be nice to get to a place where the Irish athletics teams are going to major championships and in contention to win medals realistically where they're contesting and it feels like something that's realistic and I know that you've probably had this conversation after several Olympic Games over the years and you would like to see Ireland in a position where they are learning from games moving on and improving and it doesn't feel like we're there yet. No, exactly, Marie, and that's when I said at the outset, so all the other, all the other medal hopes we had, there was at least seven or eight across the different sports. And I just had a line here, this is, this is track and field only in Tokyo. So there was eight, 83 countries won medals out of, what, 243 different countries won medals. There was three world records, 12 Olympic records, 28 area records, and then 151 national records. So there's two points there. They were, they were extremely competitive Olympics, but also... Lots of different countries, 43 different countries winning medals. So it's not like the USA are winning everything or the Russians are winning everything. I think we saw more smaller countries winning medals this year. Bahamas won both 400 metres. You had uh, an Indian man winning the, winning the javelin. You had, uh, um, uh, obviously, the Italian winning the 100 metres. So there's a big shake-up this year. But you're right, there was no Irish medal hope on the track. The last medal Ireland won on the track was Sonia in 2000. They obviously had Rob in the walk in, in London. That's a road event. And that was obviously when he put up a third place. And I do, I think the question needs to be asked, broader question now, what, what needs to change? What can we do to change this? And I think somebody has to be accountable here. And that's why I think Athletics Ireland has a, some hard questions to ask themselves, to look in the mirror and say, what do we need to do here? Do we set up a task force? Should there be a sort of a review committee? 
I tried to contact Athletics Ireland to get to, to get some reaction. We put in a request as well to for somebody from Athletics Ireland to join the conversation, but just, we didn't hear back. Yeah, just to get some assessment of are they are they is there a vision for Paris? Is there, do they do they need more coaches? Do they need to invest in the clubs? Do they need to invest in athletes? Because I think the athletes are trying their best, and it's not like boxing where they can all train together or rowing where they can all be based in one camp. Athletics, obviously, it's a much broader sport, but I get the feeling they're all pulling in different directions. You look at the Dublin Track Club, one of the one of the best things to come out of athletics in the last few years. That's Andrew Coskerin. That's uh, that's um, the the, 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 the um, the, sorry, the uh, runner as well. So they're doing really good things, but they they're outside of the athletics loop. Athletics Ireland didn't want anything to do with them, whereas they should be bringing them in and say, what more can we do to you? And I think the investment needs to be more in coaching now and in, in clubs possibly as well to get to get the numbers up. But unfortunately, I'm not seeing that in Athletics Ireland and I didn't see it after Rio. I didn't see it after London. I didn't see it after Beijing. Somebody coming down and saying, look, what do we need to do to win a medal in track and field again? And there's no there's no strategic plan or task force saying this is what we need to do. And I guarantee we'll be having the same conversation post, post Paris. Game on on 2FM. That was David Gillick and Ian O'Reardon giving me their thoughts on the Tokyo Games. After this break, footballer union rep Stephen McGuinness tells us the inspiring story of his battle with cancer. Game On on 2FM. Welcome back to Game On. Now in October, I was joined by former footballer Stephen McGuinness. He's now the General Secretary of the Professional Footballers Association of Ireland. After a discussion around vaccination amongst elite players, our focus turned to his own recent cancer diagnosis and treatment. Game on on 2FM. But look, Stephen, let's park that for a minute because um, you yourself have been fighting a, a very tough battle over the last few months. You are now, from what I gather, um, on the recovering from cancer and I can't even imagine how difficult it's been for you over the last few months. Yeah, no, it, it, it has been. It's, been. it's been tough. And I suppose there's an element, Marie, uh, a bit like the, the COVID situation uh, where players really feel invincible. I, I think former athletes and former players like myself feel that you're a bit invincible as well and that you don't need to, to go and get tests and you don't act on signs. Um, and that's something that I did. I didn't react to certain things that were changing in my life. Um, and from fatigue, from passing of blood, from different things that happened over the last year, I didn't react to them. And uh, and I think I do put that down to, to representing professional athletes, being a former player myself, thinking that I'm um, I'm a bit invincible here. And uh, and I, I pawed off the warning signs and didn't react to them. And one of the learning curves from my end is, is, is that I should have been getting blood tests every year, Marie. I should have been uh, going to the doctor when, when there was warning signs there, and I didn't. And unfortunately, that meant that the cancer had grown from my large intestine into my stomach and um, the operation, which would have been a keyhole surgery in to, to extract it from the large intestine, ended up being a, a massive operation with them having to take away three quarters in the stomach as well as the large intestine and a, a lot longer uh, recovery than what it should have been. So what's the timeline then, like from when you, you got your diagnosis to, to today? Mm. Yeah, so I was diagnosed on February 1st, operated on February the 15th. And um, so we're about eight months now now past it. Um, it's and the one side of it, Marie, from, from my own perspective, was the physical side of it wasn't something I was able to deal with the physical side. It was the mental side that I really really struggled with. I think there's a lot of people who have um, who have got cancer 
and people talk about the physical scars and how people have to deal with it but the mental scars are far more uh, deep rooted and far more difficult to deal with I believe and the amount of people after doing a piece with the start of the weekend have been in touch to say that they were in a similar position and, and start to look at my own thing and say yeah people need to talk about more about the, the mental side of dealing with it rather than just the physical side because it tends to be what people focus on so people ask you the question is normally oh, do you have pins and needles in your hands or your feet or and how, how is it, the, the, the wound is it recovering and this that and how you're eating and but the real problem I had was with my head. Mentally, I couldn't, I, I couldn't deal with what had happened, and I couldn't deal with um, day-to-day stuff. I, I just couldn't deal with it. And I was just very lucky to have good infrastructure around me, my friends and, and family, um, that to get through that. But it needed a huge amount of um, of work from from. I got some help from Arkham to the group that's involved with um, the Matter Hospital um, to talk about my mental health, and that's something that I'd never never struggled with. I always felt I was mentally very very strong, um, but this. This disease really opened me up to, to understanding better how some of my own members suffer with mental health. And maybe, as I said, the players have contacted me, and I used to look at them and go, how has he got mental health? He's just the top of the league. He's a top young mm. player in the country. He's getting paid a lot of money. How can he be dealing with, with an issue with mental health? Until I found myself in, a, in, in that position, and, uh, and I really, really struggled. I couldn't move out. I didn't move out of the house for two months. I wouldn't talk to anyone. I didn't want to see me. I'd lost 25 pounds in weight. Um, I looked like a, I just didn't didn't want to see anybody. I was living from uh, sleeping tablet to sleeping tablet. All I wanted to do was sleep and just get through each day, and just hope that it would get better. And uh, and I was lucky, as I said, I had friends that I had had through football who called up to the house and just refused to leave to leave the garden and leave the house until I came out and spoke to them. And, and they gave me that little bit of a leg up. Said, look, you don't look too bad. You'll be fine. Like, just keep keep at it. Keep talking. And that's one thing that we we don't do. And, and I look at my own wife and, and, and other people I know who would who on the on the fourth sign of anything are straight into the doctors and get checked and, and get regular blood tests and, and friends of mine who would do it. But just from my end, and I, I know a lot of players I played with and I've spoken to a lot of them over the last couple of days who, who now are going to get blood tests on the back of what happened to me, which is which is a positive and, and it, there's, a, it, there's obviously the negative of what I went through. But if that can help one, two people, well then, then that's, that's great. And it's one thing that when I go around the dressing rooms and we speak to the players, it's to ensure that they do act on anything medically that they that they see and any change in their body or any change in in, in how they deal with stuff during the, during the day, they need to make sure that they get checked and that's something that hopefully is a positive that comes out in my situation. It sounds like you learned more about yourself in those eight months than you did maybe in your whole professional football career. I, I 100% did and, and, and I, I do think as I said already I do think there's this thing about professional athletes or people who play the elite sport that you are invincible that you, you just can't be you know there's no way I can be sick I, I've played at this elite level there's no way that, that this can happen to me and then on the mental side of it you're thinking well I, I could I, can, I got through all the stuff that I got through with the FAO I got through all the stuff that I got through with my, in my walking day and through my playing career there's nothing's going to no, nothing's going to fit me and then Suddenly you realise, you look and you go, oh my God, I am now, okay, like the, the stuff I dealt with, I had no clothes that would fit. So I went down to Dunstars, I bought three tracksuits in the medium and lived in them for two months. Like, I, I, they're only little things, but I just could not face going outside the door and seeing anybody seeing me in the condition I was in because when you're at, you play at a certain level or whatever level of sport that you compete at, there's a perception of, of what people's perception of you is and what your, your perception of yourself is. And that's what I had to, had to break down that I'm not the same person that I was. I'm different, and I need to make sure that I look after myself um, in my head and my body. That I've changed. I'm not the footballer I was before. Uh, I'm not that I'm vulnerable like everybody else is vulnerable to these diseases. And I need to get help. And uh, as I said, without my wife pushing me to get the blood test, 
Um, I don't know whether I would have got through because any bit longer it would have been right up through me and, and probably too far like the stage 3 was, was the stage 3 cancer I had but if I had gone another 8 or 9 months I, God knows where you would have been so uh, there's, there's a, as I said there's a huge lesson to learn and, and I've learned a lot about myself in the last 8 or 9 months um, and I'm definitely stronger for it I'm definitely from my mind's point of view I, again I'm on antidepressant tablets at the moment the sleep tablets and other bits and pieces to help me and assist me along the way. But uh, I'm definitely stronger for it. And, and as I said, if, if what, I, what I've gone through and, and what I've spoken out about, um, I hope that that helps other people in the same situation. And time is a healer on this stuff as well. Time is a healer. And, and you, you just have to try and get get through, but you have to seek help and you have to... The one thing I, I did was close myself away. That was the biggest mistake I made. I should have I should have been out. I should have been out meeting people, talking to people through what I was going through. But again, like a lot of males and particularly sports people, um, you're lucky that way you don't people see you. We talk so often about trying to remove the stigma that's around mental health and it's a really hard thing to do. But yet when somebody like you, Stephen, comes on the radio with me and just very um, casually almost mentions the fact that you're on antidepressants and sleeping tablets, that goes a long way to normalising dealing with mental health in a, in a medical and, and professional way. Yeah, and it's from my end again. I when I went to the hospital, Marie, I had no doctor. I haven't been to a doctor in thirty years. I've never taken a headache tablet in thirty years. I don't take anything. I've never taken a tablet in my life, and I've gone from that now to having to be taking stomach tablets, to be taking antidepressants, to be taking sleeping tablets, which I'd never done before. But I need them, and and I have to deal with the fact that that I can't sleep at night without without the sleeping tablet. And uh, and I was living, as I said, from sleeping tablet to sleeping tablet. And, and I was li- living for the hoping that the nights were going to get dark or hoping that was going to rain because I, I, I wanted no sunlight coming in. I wanted it to be dark. And these are the types of, of, of situations you find yourself in. I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to do, do any. I couldn't pick up the phone. Um, and it, as I said, I was very lucky to have good friends um, who, who some have gone through mental health issues. Alan Moore w- w- was one who, who, who drove... He was former Irish international player for Wigan, or sorry, walking for Wigan out of the school. And he drove over and stood in the garden and said, I'm not coming out. Well, I'm not going until you come out with you. And, and demanded me to, to start talking about it. And that was a big turning point at the time um, because that was the first people that I'd seen outside of my family. So that was huge. And, and he knew what it had been like. He knew how difficult, from a mental health perspective, is how difficult that is to do, but you need to do it. And, uh, and it was a huge... It was a huge moment and, and, and them talking to me saying, look, you don't look too bad. You know, okay, yeah, you put the weight back on. You'll get your diet back out. you get your food intake back. It'll, it'll be fine. But, and then you talk about stuff that we done when we were kids and whether he was going to Manchester United and Trials and played for Middlesbrough and we talked about his career and my one. And then that suddenly makes you feel a little bit better. You go back inside a little bit of a pep more in your step and you go, oh, yeah. so tomorrow then we'll do a little bit more and, and you know, go meet the lads again and, and go for a walk. And, and then I, I just found myself coming out with things then. Um, but again, I'm not underestimating what everybody else is going through. Anybody who has had the disease will tell you that that the mental side of it is, is as much, if not worse, than the physical side of it. It sounds like you had to get to know yourself all over again. That you didn't recognise the person that you would become because of the illness. Yeah, I, I suppose when I looked in the mirror, I saw somebody go looking back at me, going, "Who is that?" Like? I didn't recognise myself. That that was, and I, di- I didn't like myself being vulnerable. I wasn't used to being vulnerable. I was used to always being uh, being okay with kids see the dad somebody who played football who represents professional footballers who's, who's always up and gone and out in his car and dropping the kids to train or taking or coach my, my son's team taking training all this and then suddenly the dad's lying there and he can't move it and that even for, from my own point of view for somebody who's, who's been active for the whole life to suddenly find yourself bedridden 
and suddenly look in the mirror and go, who is that bloke? That's not me. Look, I'm, that's, I'm, I'm six foot two, fifteen stone. I'm not 11 stone, 11 pounds, crunched over and can't move it. That's not me. And that took me a long time, a good few months to get my head around that. And, and the, the digestion, I tried to eat with a problem because like the signals from my stomach to my brain weren't, weren't functioning because my stomach had been removed. So you're, you're, that took a huge amount of time for that to come back. Um, and I had to train myself to eat again. I had to train myself. I had to put an app on the phone that was alert me every year to eat something. It was gone days without eating because there was no signal coming. And when I got that back in and, and started to start putting a few pounds, my confidence started to, to grow a little bit more. And then with friends around me who were telling me, look, you're getting better. Just keep, just keep going, keep going. We'll keep talking, we'll keep, keep coming up at the house. And that was just so important. And there's some great people, the, the likes of people like Shamrock Rovers, and particularly Bohemians as well, who were hugely helpful to me um, in the recovery and had been up to the house and had, had helped me out in so many ways. I can't thank them enough. I'm, I'm just very lucky to be involved in the sport where people actually care about each other. And, I, and battles I've had with people at clubs and, and at the FAOI, but when I came down to it, so many people that had been in touch to help, I just can't thank them enough. And, and that's something that we... That's why we're involved in sport. Uh, that it's not all about you know when you're being successful, but when you're down, uh, it was great to see people there to help you. And uh, I can't thank people enough, to, and especially people who've been in touch the last couple of days. Yeah, we always talk as well about just how enjoyable it is to go out and play sport and to watch it. But the real value of sport, I think, is when times get tough and you need people to rally around you to help you. It's that sporting community that more often than not is, is are the ones that step up. Yeah, I can't agree with you more. And I suppose I, I underestimated probably um, how many people um, were, were there because I suppose I played and I'm in an administrative role here now, so I would be dealing with all the clubs at the majority of times. And um, you get to know a huge amount of people. And uh, and he, it was probably a real eye-opener to me about how many people cared. I kept it to myself for so long. And what happened, Marie, was I was starting to go to games and I was getting awkward then because I was meeting people like Alan Horgan or Martin Hussler other guys and chatting away to them and then they'd hear laughter that I wasn't well and say you never told me this. so I just decided the weekend it's time to put, put it out there uh, I'd also got a feeling from a few individual people that he wouldn't mind me coming out and talking about it to help others and uh, it just felt that it was at that time the right thing to do and, um, and I said yeah, I'm looking forward to getting, uh, getting back to work I've been back to work the last couple of weeks and um, I was over with Jack Bourne in, in uh, Cyprus a couple of weeks ago and um, from FIFA so the World Players Union were heavily involved and, and that sort of things. So, um, so we're just I'm just delighted to be back walking and del- delighted that uh, hopefully now over the next couple of weeks and months when I'm around the clubs that we can we can ensure that from a mental health perspective that we're that we're ensuring that we're helping our own members current band class and our awards that are coming up and uh, one of the sponsors in the night will be heading down which is a, a group who look after mental health that's something that I'm working with at the moment so we look forward to, to working with, with everybody over the next couple of weeks and months and hopefully as a city from my own perspective that I can get back to work and, 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 uh, and get back to some type of normality Well it's great to hear you sounding so well and we're getting a, a super reaction to your interview as well so many people wishing you the best in your recovery and I think here on the show we would all echo those views as well Stephen McGuinness thank you so much for joining us and best of luck with the recovery That's our lot for today and this year. We'll be back on air on 2FM on Tuesday the 4th of January. Thank you for listening. And until then, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And Marie, thanks for doing most of the work. (laughs)